0: Well, you know, if you want one prediction for 2024, I think it's going to be a year of resolution. I think it's going to be a year in which we come to grips with major problems politically, economically, financially, and in in terms of where and how this economy is growing.
1: So I think we're going to have a recession. I think we're going to have a very volatile political period. Um, And we have two major wars, one in Europe and one in the Middle East that, you know, could easily slide into something much bigger than we expect
2: welcome back everyone to the geeks geezers and googleization show the home of googleization nation where we talk with hr and business thought leaders about the crazy shift going on all around us and explore the disruptive convergence of technology business and people here are your hosts ira wolf and jason cochran
3: Well, welcome back everyone to a very special episode of Geek Skeezers and Googleization. I'm Ira Wolf. Thank you for being part of Googleization Nation.
4: And I'm Jason Cochran. If you think this is just another podcast, think again. We're the voice of the most important conversations on the future of work that's confronting business leaders and people today. Our goal is to bring you ways to reimagine tomorrow and explore the ever-changing convergence of business, technology, and people.
3: But well, we've got our favorite Wall Street team here with us today from Odeon Capital Conversations. I can't believe we're talking about an economic wrap-up for 2023 and an update for 2024 already. But joining us today will be Dick Beauvais, Matt Van Alstine, and John Aiden Byrne. They're familiar names on Geek Excuses and Googleization, and we'll be getting started with them shortly. But we've got to ask the question, Jason, where did 2023 go? Uh, and for those who are our loyal listeners, uh, going back uh, 12 months ago, we were talking about the likelihood of a recession, 8% inflation, and rising interest rates. Uh, the war in Ukraine had just started. Here we are, 12 months later, and we've got a Fed rate of five and a quarter to five and a half percent, substantially higher than it was before. But we just closed the last quarter, uh, GDP growing at 4.9%, which hardly sounds like a recession. So we got to ask the question, what's going on and what lies ahead? Stay tuned. But before I bring on our guest today, I want to share a huge recognition that Geek Skeezers and Googleization just received. Actually, this morning, bright and early, 12.13 a.m. this morning, when I checked my email, we were the the number one leadership podcast, according to GoodPods, last week. We were in the top five management podcast and number 57 in the all-time top 100. So we want to thank all our listeners, uh, all our GGG Unleashed partners, Googleization Nation, and of course, all the listeners joining us today and all our great guests that we've had. Uh, You can listen to any of our past episodes wherever you listen to podcasts, YouTube, or watch us on Roku now. But we've got a lot to talk about today. So let's dive into today's conversation with Dick, Matt, and John. Although these gentlemen need little introduction for our listeners. So Dick Beauvais, he may be the longest serving bank analyst on Wall Street today. Uh, He's been doing this for over 50 years. He's the chief financial analyst at Uh, Odeon Capital Group, and you've likely seen or heard him on shows like uh, CNBC, uh, Bloomberg News, Fox Business, maybe CNN, or you read one of his 10,000 plus print interviews or forecasts. And then we've got Matt Van Alstine, who's co-founder, owner, and managing partner of Odeon Capital Group, which is based in New York City. And Matt and Dick team up each week for their Odeon Capital Conversations, which is hosted by our friend John Aiden Byrne, who's an experienced and Wall Street business journalist and editor and successful podcast host and producer. Uh, The show is now ranked, uh, the podcast is now ranked in the top 2% of all podcasts, uh, and it's one of the top rated business podcasts on Apple. He's also hosted the very popular Dig Life Deep podcast, which I visit each episode for an update on future work called Future Shock 2.0. So we have a lot to talk about. Let's dig in and welcome gentlemen to bring to the stage, Dick and Matt and John. Welcome back, guys.
5: Yeah, it's Thank great you. to be back.
3: It's a, it's a pleasure. Let's kick off with uh, what's going on with where we were 12 months ago. Unless I'm doing the wrong math, 4.9% GDP annual growth hardly seems like recession, Doc. Dick, why don't we start with you? Where, where, where are we and what's
0: going on? Well, I think that uh, 4.9% number has to be uh, disaggregated a little bit uh, because if you do that, you find that, uh, you know, the growth in the uh, quarter was not particularly exciting at all. It was, in fact, very, very close to what it was in the second quarter. And the reason I say that is because there was this immense increase in inventory building that occurred during the quarter, and that had uh, this impact uh, on on the number that would uh, cause it to go up to that 4.9 percent rate. Uh, If you take a look at the Atlanta Fed numbers for the fourth quarter, They're down at 1.2% right now, which is consistent with where I think we were in the third quarter. If you take out uh, two things, one, the inventory building and the slight benefit we got in terms of the net exports import balance. So I I don't think that uh, it was a very strong quarter. I think it was a quarter in line with what we've seen for most of this year. And I think that... uh, Since we're not going to get, you know, the two benefits that we did get in the third quarter, uh, I think uh, there's still a very good chance that we could slip into a recession. Matt, what's your take? I I mean, I think I completely agree. I think Dick is right.
1: And, you know, the the, the tell here is the Atlanta Fed has a tracker called GDP Now, which it's a fun way to go in and just see where they think, you know, GDP will ultimately end up. And they came into the quarter, and, and they're more of like a, Current type measurement. So, you know, they're measuring at the end of October. You know, they're getting ready for measuring November. They like, they, they, they change their, their measurements quite frequently. Um, near the end of October, they were saying 2.3%. I'm talking about for Q4. Right now, sitting here right now, they're at 1.2%. Clearly, something has changed in the last four to six weeks, at least as measured by the Atlanta Fed, to, to show that GDP is rapidly declining. Sounds like we're still in the same situation as we were that there's a
3: potential recession coming could be hopefully it'll be a soft landing but the you know the numbers certainly have been defiant all year round uh the fed has is stalled rates at least for the last few times but uh there's rumors uh you guys would know you know more than than nuts uh that they they may be you know ticking up again maybe doing another quarter but we still have which is my bailiwick uh we still have the you know labor market Jolt rate has come down uh we no longer have three four five job openings per person but we still have like one and a half job openings per available employee we're still at 3.9 percent unemployment i and again i know we've had this conversation often um that we can't predict uh where it's going to go but we we've said last year at this time and you know it may it, it may, at the highest, be around 4 or 4.1%, and that's what they suspect it might be. Still tight labor, uh, tight labor in, in many different areas. Uh, what what impact? I mean, what can we expect? Is Powell going to try to control the, the uh, labor markets um, and inflation and the growth um, through another Fed
5: hike? Ira, and I'm picking up on something that um, Matt um, noted in our most recent episode of Odeon Capital Conversations, that in the latest Bureau of Labor statistic numbers the 150,000 job gains, a huge proportion of the job gains are in part-time work. And so the conclusion was that many more Americans are working part-time jobs to make ends meet. It's a sign of stress. And also the, the, the rise in auto delinquencies and just consumer debt, um, has soared in recent months. So that's something to watch out for.
4: John, that's a great point. Um, in, in that report, they're talking about how many, you t- talk about part-time jobs, but this is even people that are taking on additional jobs. So that part-time job is on top of their full-time employment, um, like you were alluding to there, which is just an unhealthy sign of stress. But let's let's go through those numbers you just referenced, John. I know we we're talking about this at the top of the show with, with Dick and Matt also it seems like americans right now are using debt to try and fight inflation here here are those latest numbers that just came out this week mortgage debt is up 126 billion this year car loan debt is up 13 billion this year student loan debt is up 30 billion this year and then credit card debt is up 48 billion and it smashed her record for total credit card debt for households we're now at 1.08 1.08 trillion with a t in credit card debt how do we go about trying to fix that
0: well i think there will be a natural function that will fix it because in line with the numbers you just mentioned basically uh there was uh an increase in the defaults uh being shown and you know surprisingly uh the increase in mortgage defaults has has grown uh and I say surprisingly because housing prices are still going up and people don't default on houses when there's a huge profit to be made in selling the house. Um, the uh, credit card area showed a significant increase in defaults. Uh, autos are showing some increase in defaults, but not to the degree that uh, you know, the other two uh, areas are mentioning. And you know, the overall default numbers are not as good as they would usually be. Because of the student loan numbers, um, apparently uh, they, they did not include a, a, a realistic number for student loan defaults because we had this uh, period in which nobody had to pay back their student debt. So I think, uh, you know, you have that issue that people are defaulting on their debt. But you know, I'd like to go back to the labor number because I personally don't understand why those numbers are even published, okay? because if you take a look at the four numbers that the Department of Labor puts out every, uh, every month, you can see a disparity which is just mind-blowing. In other words, you, you had 151,000 seasonally adjusted uh, establishment increases in jobs. If you didn't seasonally adjust it, the establishment number, the government is saying it was over a million increase in jobs. If you swing over to what is the household number, in taking a look at the job market, they show that the seasonally adjusted numbers were 7,000 increases in jobs, and they show that the non seasonally adjusted number was down by a couple of hundred thousand. So, you know, you have the government coming out with a series of numbers, each one of which they would argue is totally valid, one of which is showing a substantial decline in the number of jobs that were added, another one is showing a substantial number. Of increases, and then going a little bit, boring a little bit further into those numbers. Uh, the government likes to do something called birth death analysis. In other words, it likes to estimate the number of companies that were started in a month, uh, in a given month, and the number of people that they were hiring. Well, that birth death number is three times bigger than the, uh, almost three times bigger than the, um, total jobs number that came out under the establishment seasonally adjusted number which is what the press usually uses. So I every every month I look at these numbers I cannot believe that they have the I'm going to call it chutzpah to show you know what, you know, what the, the supposedly the job market is doing when they can come out and tell you on one hand the jobs numbers is now close to 350,000 on the other hand It could be up close to over a million. How how can they do that? I don't I don't get
3: it. It's a question I had, and even going back to before when we talk about, um, you know, are we accurately tracking people who are bringing in an income from doing some work? So if you look at, you know, I just read this number the other day that there's probably 30 million people that are are not tracked by the government but are working gig jobs, you know, whether they're through. yeah, you know, digital work, uh, but even the Lyft and Uber drivers. I mean, we just we were in Texas just a few uh, weeks ago, and every Uber driver was that was a full time work. I mean, they they didn't have another job, um, and they said, well, maybe we'll go back, but are they even being tracked? But they're bringing in an income.
0: You yeah, know, that, that's clearly uh, correct, but you know. I- You know, the the household series, you know, is based upon calling up people and saying, do you have a job, right? The establishment service is based upon calling up companies saying, did you hire someone or you didn't hire someone? Now, you would think that those two numbers would come closer together, but they're not. They're they're diverging at at a, a wider pace. So I prefer to take a look at the unemployment claims number, also produced by the Labor Department, because the unemployment claims number is based upon you know, a tangible event. Someone has gone to a, an office in some state in the United States and made a claim uh, you know, for unemployment uh, insurance. Uh, and what those numbers are showing in the last couple of weeks is that there was a slight decline in, the, uh, I'm sorry, a slight increase in the number of people, uh, not, not a big increase, but a slight increase, but two weeks in a row of the people seeking unemployment insurance. So my view is that uh, the job market is weakening, uh, that you know there are a lot of excess laborers uh, in, in uh, companies. And I, 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 my, my, my feeling is that we will definitely go through four and a quarter percent uh, in terms of unemployment. And, and I think it's going to ultimately get at the five, five and a quarter percent level before it stops. I I guess my counter I want to say
3: counter argument just throwing throwing this out to you dick if they're not it if you're going by if you find the unemployment claims uh, more reliable. If you have that many gig workers. um, They're not they're not they can't file for unemployment because they're independent contractors. They're not working for anybody.
0: Yeah, no, no, you're right. You, you, you're right, Ira. And, and, and the point, Ira, is that, uh, you know, basically, um, the, these numbers can't be done accurately. <laughs> that's, what, that's what I'm trying to demonstrate by throwing out all these wide array of numbers. That the, the, These people at the, at the Census Bureau and the Department of Labor, they work diligently. They're, they're very honest people. They, they're trying to do the best job possible, but the job that they're trying to do I think is beyond the capability. And, and I think that's true of a lot of the government numbers that we get and we tend to rely on so heavily. I just think that you know attempting to look at a nation of I think 360 million people, how many of them are working, what the GDP is, what they're buying, et cetera, is, is, is a mind-blowing job. Uh, I find it interesting also to disaggregate the numbers and to see where the increase in jobs are occurring. And what what I find very distressing is that manufacturing jobs are not increasing; they're going down. And you know, my belief is that you've got to have manufacturing or producing of goods to really drive the economy. What is going up is tourism-related jobs, jobs related to healthcare, which go up every month, and government jobs are going up. And I just don't think that if were you getting this increase in in, in calculated jobs from the government, you know, uh, the, the healthcare industry, uh, education, you know, workers are going up, and you're not getting it from places where goods are being produced, that that is not a very positive sign.
4: And related to that, Dick, also, there are numbers currently that are out that bankruptcies are currently up 13% this year. Um, so we're losing, uh, you know, a lot of, of companies that are struggling. How big of a concern is that for you? And then Matt? To you also, how big of a concern is that 13% rise in bankruptcies, or do you view it more as this is just part of the unfortunate side of the pruning of certain types of uh, work in the economy as it continues to evolve and hopefully get better over time?
1: Well, I, I, I take issue with the word pruning. I mean, this is people's <laughs> this is people's livelihoods. Like, we're everyone who's paying the price right now for the feds mismanagement of their balance sheet over the last few years. It's 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 a tragedy for them on a, on a personal basis, losing a business or losing your job is a terrible situation. And, it, you know, it, it, it makes you almost angry that the, this, the, this is the system we're in where the Fed overprints, and then when to, to compensate for their overprinting, they pull in the reins, raise interest rates and, and, and start selling off bonds. And it just seems so backwards. And I also want to just point out, like, Dick and I on our podcast, we've talked a lot about how the BLS and the household surveys and, you know, these numbers, you can't trust them. And I just keep pointing back to whether you can or you can't, you know, that's that's almost not, it's almost academic. The question is, are they applying consistent methods that's capturing the true, you know, momentum of the economy? As long as they're going consistently, when you get a jobs report like this one, which is just... You know, you basically take four numbers and all four of them are pointing to totally different situations. You know, the household survey shows we lost 348,000 jobs. The BLS survey shows we added 150,000, but they're including 400,000 fake ones. And of the 150,000 we added, you know, 50,000 of them are government jobs, which is really just a tax on the rest of the other jobs. So those shouldn't count. And there's another 100,000 part-time jobs. And then you go and look at you know how many people report that they're working two full-time jobs or a full-time job and a part-time job or a part-time job when they prefer a full-time job, and you get about 10 million workers are in these, you know what what are supposed to be stressful situations when the economy is not going so hot. So you know as much as the numbers aren't you know per se reliable to a degree of accuracy, they are telling a story of duress and stress out there throughout the marketplace. And one last thing on the on the bankruptcies that that's just a sign of interest rates rising. You know, that is purely a sign of not being able to refi your debt or going out and acquiring new debt because banks are being told because of the Fed, you know, rein in your lending, whether it's implicit or explicit. You know, it's it, it's it's we don't want to lend to risky things. We prefer you buy treasuries and we're not going to lend to companies. And so, the, you know, low the low interest rate, easy money world that we've been used to where you know every tom dick and harry could go out and extend and pretend their loan is gone and so businesses that were on the cusp are failing and i think that's indicative of of the economy we're in
5: i know we'll get to it later ira the the money supply because dick has done some unique research into it but um you know that pumped up and primed the economy and we saw that in the banking sector where. There's surplus excess savings by consumers and they're drawing that down and um you know consumers um and savers the savings rate has dropped and that excess money in banks is is disappearing and that's going to have a um ripple effect on you know consumption in the in the coming months um so i mean the signs are pretty clear that nobody I mean we've people have called for recession for you know the longest time but it seems now it's more nearer than than ever before
3: yeah that's interesting you brought that up and and i i, I do want to lead this into uh the the conversation that um that dick has uh, about the money market and we will pull up some graphs there but there was an article i think it was just this week it could have been last week i don't know time just seems to go by uh, in the Wall Street Journal, and it was about um, that we now have this r- rapidly rising group of mini millionaires. So there was a 42% increase in the number of people uh, who have, now have a net worth of more than $1 million, and the, the number also has gone up for those that have a net worth of more than $2 million. It was pretty significant um they did say that a lot of that was eaten up you know that wealth that people gained was eaten up by inflation um but is is that group the group that's driving the consumption um there, there obviously is a lot of money to spend but then you have the other end of this wage uh, of, not at the wage gap but the the earnings gap the wealth gap you have people that are just living day to day so there seems to be this 10 or 20% of the population, not the 1%, but the 10 or 20% of the population that has an average net worth of a million to $2 million to $5 million um, that has money to spend. Um, they're all in their f- between 45 and 65 years old, uh, which was this fastest growing, growing group. But then you have the rest of this population that is struggling day to day. That's a complicated question, but is it the fact that that the the surge that we're seeing in the economy and the consumer spending is related to this 10%, to 15 to 20% of the population that has money, but we've got this 80% that's really struggling.
2: Are your employees feeling stuck and just showing up for a paycheck? Is your workforce working harder to get back to normal than adapting to the future? It's time to help them break their addiction to certainty and develop a growth mindset. Developed by one of the world's top-rated future of work thought leaders, AQ Plus Mindset is a powerful tool to help your employees embrace change, adapt faster, and grow on the job. Conveniently delivered to any smartphone or laptop and easy-to-digest five-to-ten-minute lessons, managers can sit back and watch employee attitudes shift towards growth and innovation in just 30 days. Are you ready to help your employees thrive in this ever-changing, never-normal world? Encourage them to show more grit, resilience, adaptability, and unlock their potential? The journey to a growth-filled future starts with a growth mindset. Visit AQPlusMindset.com or call 484-373-4300. Yeah, that's.
0: I want to broaden what you just said uh, because, and I, I want to quote three sources. Uh, one, uh, Bank of America recently put out some data indicating that uh, the the net worth of, uh, of, of, of sorry, the, the amount of assets being managed uh, in in the United States has jumped from 25 trillion ten years ago to 65 trillion today. 40 trillion dollar increase in ten years. 200 years to get to 25 trillion, 10 years to get to 65 trillion. Uh, the chairman of Goldman Sachs, uh, you know David Solomon, said that there is uh, 70, uh, 70 trillion dollars uh, under management uh, in, in, the con- in in the country today. And you know the chairman of of uh, Morgan Stanley indicated that he's very confident that Morgan Stanley will reach uh, the 10 trillion dollar mark in terms of money being managed. And the question which I've actually started working on this a week ago and I do not have the answer is where is this money coming from? How 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 can we have how can we have a forty trillion dollar increase in ten years and a twenty-five trillion dollar increase in two hundred years? What is happening which is causing this to occur? Now in, in the initial, you know, and, and again I, I, have, I have no nowhere close to answering this question, but in the initial forays into the numbers, you know, I discovered that, you know, we've got $140 trillion as being the uh, wealth of U.S. households, $140 trillion. Now, that includes their real estate, includes, uh, you know, the the other implements that they may own, but the bulk of it is financial in nature. What, What has happened? Is it you know, huge government deficits, which resulted in massive money creation? You know, is it, uh, you know, the fact that, uh, you know, the dollar has been rising and interest rates in the United States are higher than they are elsewhere in the world, and that's sucking money in, you know, to the United States from elsewhere in the world? I I don't know the answer, but I just cannot believe that there is that much money around, and I cannot believe that it's going to continue to grow at the pace that it's been growing. Matt, I, I just can
5: like see. To the quickly wheel add to that, that Ira, um, that you mentioned that twenty percent the growth in the millionaire class, and some of that could be inflation, of course. But the uh, savings rate has been the excess savings rate has been spent out, and um, it's the group in that one million, you know, the high net worth consumer that has you know that excess savings uh, to spend out, but you know, most of it's gone, I think we're down to 500 billion in excess savings. So, um, but it's held by that affluent group, the amount that's left, which is sort of interesting and ties into what you and Dick were talking about.
1: Matt, I was just thinking the, the, you know, the basic formulas you learn in macroeconomics in college, which, you know, it's if, if, if you have the, um, you know, investment plus government spending minus taxes has to equal Private savings, you know, plus imports minus exports, and so you know to see this much um, growth of domestic savings, almost belies the export story. And I I'm just trying to sit and think why am I getting this wrong, and I don't really have a good answer. I feel like the answer has to be explained, somewhat at least, by inflation. Um, you know, because when when we measure inflation in the United States, we measure um, the price of consumer spending, whether it's on goods or services, but it's consumer spending. But what doesn't really get captured in that is the overall inflation of household wealth. And, you know, I kind of wonder if, you know, we've been on a tear for for houses and, and home prices in America, that if you just look at it as one one house, there's just one house in the United States, and that's our housing supply, it's gone up almost, almost two and a half fold since, you know, 2000, I think it's almost threefold since 2000. And so I I kind of suspect that that's the answer of where these assets are coming from is people are getting mortgages, or not paying off their mortgages quickly, because they have, you know, these super low interest rate mortgages that they got. Hopefully, hopefully, it's all of us we got, you know, in 2020. And with your excess money, you're not paying off your debt, because why would you, and you're putting it into other investments. And I think that's why it's showing up um to, to for me to square the circle on on you know how where this money is coming from I think it's coming from household wealth to answer Dick's question
3: I, I want to come back to labor a little bit and it also may play into where the GDP was and some of the unemployment uh for the last quarter but it's obviously going to change with layoffs and strikes so you know we we had the the, the layoffs from in, in the automotive industry uh, we've had a, a lot of layoffs, but there's still not anywhere near where, you know, what the record, you know, record was, um, and certainly a, a, a employee's market. Where does that fit into your updates or forecasts or projections for uh, the future? I mean, uh, you know, and again, and, 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 and we, we haven't even touched on wage growth.
0: Well, the UAW strike, uh, you know, struck me as being uh, kind of interesting because, uh, you know, one can make a compelling case that, uh, you know, if management is increasing its income by 25 percent, if the corporation is increasing its uh, profits by, you know, a, a sizable amount, that uh, they've got to share some of that increase with the laborers. So, you know, the laborers get the increase, right? And what does that do? In my mind, all I think of, it's uh, increasing the sale of Toyotas and Nissans and other, you know, foreign uh, cars, because basically, you know, Americans are not willing to pay uh, for for this increase in labor in terms of the increase in cars being sold. So I think on on a net basis, uh, if you you add in, you know, we always talk about manufacturing being weak. If you add in the impact on manufacturing that this is likely to create, and you add in the impact on inflation that it's likely to create, I think that uh, overall, um, it's it's not it's not positive for the economy. It's it's uh, very negative. Um, you know the the ISM numbers came out uh, last week. You know the it, it, I think it's what Institute of Supply Management, uh, which uh, shows corporations are thinking of doing uh, in terms of uh, ordering goods, hiring people, you know, uh, increasing uh, their, their prices, et cetera. And, you know, the service side of the economy, you know, showed, you know, a moderate increase, not as much as it had been increasing, but a moderate increase. The manufacturing side of the economy showed devastating de- decreases. I mean, you know, it, that if, if these numbers are anywhere correct, Manufacturing sector is already in a recession, so uh, I I think that um, I think that you know, much as people do deserve increases in in their income, and much as there seems to be a significant skewing between you know the upper, if you will, income earners and the lower income earners, uh, there's got to be there's got to be a better way of reallocating funds throughout the economy, because I think that. these strikes are not positive. Uh, they're not positive for uh, increasing the GDP and they're not positive for holding down inflation.
4: Dick, is this where this concept of universal basic income could eventually kick in at some point to help mitigate the gap between the haves and the have-nots?
0: I, I think it has to, right? I mean, it, it just, you know, we're, we're seeing this, you know, the Gini index uh, for the United States. The last time I looked, was pretty close to the one for Haiti, uh, and and that's 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 really devastating. That's not good at all. So I think I think you're right, Jason. At some point, there's going to be uh, a reduction in, in the in the gap, which tends to grow on a regular basis. Hey, Matt, it looked like your eyes were going to pop out of your head when you
1: said that. <laughs> yes, <laughs> me and Dick agree on so many things, and you know, I, I, I the the. the um you know the universal basic income as a concept when it's written down on paper sounds a lot like socialism as a concept when it's written down on paper and it really comes down to implementation and you know we we agree obviously the genie coefficient you know comparing us to haiti is just i feel like that's just kind of like titillating it gets you excited because haiti is clearly a poorly run country and we're not a poorly run country and When you're comparing the richest people in Haiti to the poorest people in Haiti, you're talking about people who live western, modern lifestyles with air conditioning and and flush toilets to people in extreme, absolute, dire poverty, which is not the case in the United States. The the wealth and the rich and poor gap in the United States, people who generally have flush toilets, air conditioning, cell phones, cable TV, and drive cars. And the question, how many, you know, how many cars do you have? And how easily can you afford it? And where you get your money from? Is it from government handouts? So I, I don't feel like throwing words around like, oh, we're, we're just as bad as Haiti, you know, advances the argument so much. And the problem really is in America, when we're talking about a UBI, because of our tax system, you're by and large taxing the highest earners in America to subsidize the lowest earners or people who aren't working in America. And that won't really make a dent in the Gini coefficient because the highest earners in America are a massively disparate group from the wealthiest people in America. And the wealthiest people in America, the, the wealth transcends generation after generation after generation. And, you know, I, I, it, you, you saw my face that you always, you'll see my face react to that whenever you hear, hear a presidential debate, you know, when 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 Al Gore or Barack Obama was talking about, you know, we want to tax the wealthiest 1%. Well, that's, that's a lie. They're never actually talking about taxing the wealthiest 1% they're talking about taxing the 1% highest wage earners. And those are different people because if you're, if you're in the wealthiest 1%, by and large, your income comes through dividends through um, collecting on your tax free munis. You know, I live in the state of Colorado and one of the richest people in our state is our governor. And for five or six years straight, while he's been governor, he submits his tax returns and he doesn't pay any taxes how can you be the richest person in the state and not pay any taxes? All he owns is tax-free munis. He has 400 million of them and makes 15 or $20 million a year tax-free and doesn't pay income taxes. And then you compare that to my guess is every single one of us on this podcast makes significantly less than $20 million per year. And we're paying probably roughly between a 40 and 50% overall tax rate, depending on your state. And so, you know, I, I, we need we need a better system, and you know I always complain on our podcast that what we don't have in America is we don't have leaders, and we don't, you know look look at our president. He he's given one Oval Office address, and it really was to rah rah us in getting involved in two other countries' wars, not really you know a unifier, not really talking about the real problems. He's never once talked about Social Security, which is going to go bankrupt in less than eight years. Um, when it goes bankrupt by law, Social Security benefits are going to be cut by twenty seven percent same with Medicaid and Medicare. These are actual crises facing our country. And we don't have serious leaders addressing them. There's no one in Congress talking about this. There's no one in the White House talking about this. And if you want to fix the Gini coefficient, we have to change in America our taxation system so that we can actually reduce the wealth gap. And, you know, I am the first person to be against wealth taxes, you know, and, and you know, it comes, it gets suggested that maybe we need to adjust the capital gains tax or debt tax. But if your if your goal is to fix the genie problem, the genie coefficient problem, you're not going to solve it with an income tax. We just do the program.
5: I, I might just add um, here also that the COVID spending the largest that uh, was spent by the government during COVID and obviously we had a serious emergency, we risked uh, America facing are headed heading into a a major depression that fuels, right? A lot of this um, rising income inequality because a lot of it um, subsidized banks and and wealthier people. Well, it, it just a,
1: ignoring subsidizing banks, the PPP didn't distinguish between businesses that desperately needed the money and businesses that certainly qualified for the money, and so the average business owner, I believe, got something like two hundred fifty thousand dollars of of just tax free cash handed to them. And the average citizen who wasn't a business owner got on average something like two or $3,000 yep. throughout the whole PPP. So yeah, that was a, that was a complete handout to the wealthy. Um, it probably saved a lot of jobs though, because the, you, if you didn't need the money, you still had to pledge. You weren't going to do layoffs. And so if you, if you're planning on doing layoffs, cause you know, don't, don't let a crisis go to waste. It's easier to do layoffs when the entire country is shutting down and no one can question, you know, your decision making or your 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 stability to stay in business. But PPP probably stopped that. So it, I feel very calm. Com- uh, I debate that one because the goal—the goal was to save jobs. It seemingly worked. If the goal was to get the one percent richer, that also seemingly worked.
5: Yeah, I guess my bigger point was that uh, while the the um, poorer um, people in our country and in the world do need a lift up and certainly need our compassion and so on um and the government can get involved but governments historically have been shown to be pretty poor administrator administrators of any capital programs they've really created major fiascos so you know this universal income concept might sound grandiose and and wonderful but I, i don't know how the government could properly get involved in something like that you know, I,
0: I really agree with the, that, that last statement, and I agree with my statements about, uh, you know, the uh, fact that tax taxation policy is not going to resolve the, the issues uh, at all. Uh, I my my view uh, has always been continues to be that we've got to return uh, turn away from being a consumption economy to a production economy, uh, and that what we really need is not the government to interfere with us. Know, in terms of its taxation policies or its other policies but you know to stimulate uh, you know production and, and that therefore the ism numbers that i mentioned you know are, are frightening to me because i thought that you know we we about a year ago or maybe two years ago made the decision that we wanted to stimulate uh, more manufacturing in the united states and according to these uh, you know to the labor numbers and the ism numbers we're not doing it But to me, the only way you can really adjust the imbalance, uh, you know, in terms of uh, the wealthy and and the less wealthy is to uh, create income. And you create income by creating products and by selling those products. And in my view, you know, that's what has to happen. And, you know, I'm fully in agreement with Matt. Also, uh, I can't think of uh, a a bigger... uh, what is it, a ridiculous show uh, in, in, in the world, in the American Congress, uh, you know, it, it just it just blows my mind that we can have this many, I'm going to call them freaks, you know, taking control of different aspects of the government. So I have no faith in government to solve any problems. I have a lot of faith in the fact that if we allowed capitalism to work, you know, in the manufacturing side, it would solve a lot of problems.
4: To that end, Dick, uh, w- will AI and automation kind of help us with that? In other words, in the future, do you anticipate we'll be less reliant on the government doing things with the interest rate because we actually will be able to do a much better job in terms of productivity with getting goods and services and products out into the market?
0: Yeah, Absolutely. I'm, I'm a huge believer in AI. I'm a huge believer that that is the salvation of, uh, you know, the problem that I just mentioned, which is getting the cost of producing goods in the United States down to a level where they are competitive in the world market. I mean, the United States became this huge economic power in the uh, 19th century uh, because, basically, we produced. We produced things that everybody else in the world wanted, and we sold them. Uh, and that's what we're not doing now. You know, I, I was shocked, uh, you know. that. Nobody knows Aesop tables any, tales anymore. You know, uh, I, you know, they don't. Nobody reads them. None of my grandchildren have heard the Aesop tables. But the one that sticks in my mind is the grasshopper and the ants. You know, we're grasshoppers. We're the consumers. We're not saving and putting away for the rainy day the way the ants did in in in, in, the, in the tale. And I think that the, that, that has got to stop. We've got to become the ants. We've got to become the producers. And, and we're just not doing it. And, and, and that's, that's very, very discouraging.
1: I, I, I want to challenge you a little bit on that, Dick, because you know, I've, we, we, you've know been saying that, and I've been listening, and I've been nodding along for the last couple of years, and I, I think I agreed with you. And then I've been reading all this stuff about what's gone wrong with China, and I'm starting to wonder, maybe I got this wrong. And China seems to be that they've been plowing their excess savings into more manufacturing capacity to the point that they were building houses and building, you know, ghost cities and building subways to nowhere and and so on and so forth. And by wasting their excess savings inefficiently, they've become, you know, much more structurally dependent on exports than than an economy should be. And it's really hard for them to pivot as modern economies around the world are to being a consumer economy and you know we've been a manufacturing economy since Bretton Woods but we've been manufacturing US dollars and that's been our greatest export and it's created our greatest wealth and I kind of sit and think you know when when you talk about we should bring manufacturing back you know if if Joe Biden or Trump or whoever you pick as your president decides I'm gonna you know focus my entire presidency on bringing manufacturing to the United States you you would run into real structural problems because you have to make it so it's cost effective to do it and we have high cost labor um, and there's low cost labor just across the border and to our south there's low cost labor all over Southeast Asia and so what company is going to move here if they don't have to and without some sort of like massive subsidy that we saw in the silicon chip industry where basically the government is paying for these plants to be built, paying for the manufacturing to be built, because they know there's no way you're going to get it built here unless we make it a sunk cost for the taxpayer, and, and we're elevating you know Silicon Ship to a high level, which is, is a national defense issue, and we've decided as a country we're going to subsidize this industry. Absent that, and by the way, that broadly speaking makes you poor when you have less efficient investment, from the government and, and draws out, you know, wipes out com- competition. I just wonder how you're going to achieve that actually lowering the standard of living because it seems that free trade has actually been the biggest benefit, you know, the biggest momentum behind
0: uh, the rising standard of living in the United States over the last few decades. I think an argument I think an argument could be made that the China's problem was not that uh, it generated this huge uh, set of surpluses from manufacturing but the way they allocated the uh, funds that were created. I mean, in building um, these cities of uh, supposedly, uh, we supposed to get to the point that they were able to handle a million people uh, and they built, I think, uh, some, some 40 of them and nobody is living in them. I think that was a bad allocation of funds. Uh, you know, they, they, they put the money into real estate. Why didn't they figure out a way to put the money into the hands of the, the workers, and the answer there is clear. Because if the workers got significant increases in pay, uh, the way they did in Japan, then China would not have its you know manufacturing edge around the world. So I mean, all this stuff is really complicated. But I really do, I'm, I think I'm in Jason's camp when he says AI is is uh, one of the major ways to solve the problem. We've got to come up with technological answers which allow us to create products. As I say which are low cost and, and very useful uh, and can be sold to the world. Uh, and I think it can be done. I, I don't think that uh, we need the government to do it for us. I think it can be done.
5: And it should be noted also, uh, Dick, that um, even though the numbers show manufacturing is slumping at the moment and it's in um, in, in a bad way, but. Um, you know, there have been subsidies and say what you will for um, to help in the um, chip sector. You know, you had the Inflation Reduction Act and the Chips Act. And so there is evidence of a lot of um, manufacturing, fresh manufacturing opening up in various regions in the country. Um, and so maybe at some point that will be reflected in the numbers. And I mean, with and, and they're promising like real substantial headcount and and
0: the Well, you know, I think that, uh, I think that uh, you, you're correct. Um, But When I take a look at this chip situation, uh, you know, the the, uh, point is that basically um, there's been massive delays in in getting these uh, plants underway. There's been, you know, all sorts of, uh, you know, local regulations and requirements which are which are sitting back getting uh, getting something done there and therefore um, you know the government could help there by getting rid of a lot of this uh, a lot of these uh, issues and these problems which uh, unfortunately uh, it, it's not doing but I mean again um, I, I do think that you know if, if we put all of our uh, if you will knowledge and, and capabilities focused on, you know, how can we produce these products? I won't repeat what I said six times already. It, it will be, it will work. And I do think it will be done because it must be done. So we're, we're about 15 minutes into this. We just have a
3: few minutes left and we haven't talked about a, a, a few really, um, I won't say hot topics, but, um, you know, certainly uh, table topics. One is Gaza and Ukraine. What impact, I mean, I, I know you guys can't, forecast what's going to happen with that but it's obviously a, a huge issue is it what impact might it have on our uh
0: you know on 2024. well i i have done a lot of reading on, on russian history um going back to when i was in college and it, it strikes me that uh if you go back to alexander nevsky or Ivan the terrible uh you know uh, Peter the Great, Catherine the Great. One thing that emerges in, in uh, Russian history, which never, never changed, is their desire to empire build. You know, they always, a thousand years, they, they've been doing the same thing. And if you go out to Stalin and the Soviet Union, they did create an empire. Every big is, uh, you know, the Roman Empire. And every bit is possible. When, when the Soviet Union was broken up, there were 24 23 countries created from the breakup of the Soviet Union, and Russia is still, you know, got this, you know, biggest country in landmass in the world. So, so the net effect is, I think that, you know, this is this is another push on the part of uh, another oligarch or or czar or whatever you want to call him, emperor, you know, to you know rebuild the Russian Empire, and and I think that. uh, it has to be stopped, I mean, at least from my perspective, because I don't think there's any will to not do it. And if you read the stuff that that is being written today, um, it would appear that that an oligarchy was set up in St. Petersburg, uh, you know, at the time of the uh, destruction of the Soviet Union, and that, that this group of people, you know, gained control of the Russian government and gain control of the major industries in in Russia, and that you know basically they they want to expand their their control. If they get Ukraine or Poland or the you know the Baltic states, which they believe I mean Peter the Great conquered them, and he, they believe that they are, they are truly Russian uh, you know company countries, uh, then these oligarchs will increase their wealth. I don't know why they have to since they're billionaires. Multi billionaires, but they will increase their wealth enormously, and the and and the Russian empire building, which, as I say, go back a thousand years, and find any evidence in the history of Russia which says that these guys are not empire builders. And, and, but it will it will it will continue, and, and I, I personally believe it's got to be stopped. Uh, my
1: my little joke is I thought I think who would have predicted that Hamas will stop the war in Ukraine. But I think that's the outcome of this. Is I think America, you know, is looking around the world and they're like, who are our allies versus who are our conveniences? Um, I, I disagree with Dick. I feel like the Ukraine war clearly has been a stalemate um, from a particular point in early, early in the war. You know, you basically have borders that don't really shift more than a few miles, a few hundred yards every now and then, and those borders are plumb full with landmines. And, you know, this is kind of how World War Two or World War One had to end, which is, you're not going to really shift the land battle, you're running out of money, you're running out of men, you're running out of soldiers, and you're gonna have to have a peace deal. But go to your your main thrust of your question, which is, how does this affect the markets? I don't think the markets care at all, except for does this turn into World War Three, if you get into a war with Iran, and the Hormuz Strait is closed and oil prices go through the roof, then you know, that's going to really clearly impact the markets. If there's a breakthrough on Russia's, you know, Western front or whatever you want to call it from the Donbass and they, you know, start looking like they're heading toward Kiev and heading into Poland or Romania, then you've got World War III on your hands and clearly the markets will react. But if this stays as a war in Ukraine and, you know, Israel versus Hamas in, in Gaza Strip, it's not going to have, you know, any any material impact on, on, the, on the global economy in my opinion.
0: Yeah.
3: I'm going to throw. Let me throw this to, to you, Matt, because I think we had this conversation before in a prior one about uh, real estate. So uh, we work, you know, crashes and burns for the second time. Um, yeah. They, you know, the, the obvious, the, the cost of these pro- or, or the value of these properties is is tanking. You know, there's more and more companies that are cutting back on on their space and and looking at conversions. Is it just going to be news and it makes good headlines or is it is uh, the commercial real estate market a problem?
1: I suspect that there are some banks out there and I suspect there's some private funds out there that it's going to be a problem for. But I don't suspect that it's going to be a problem, you know, like 2008, where it, it, this is the leading cause of the economy coming to a screeching halt. I think that's going to be something else. I think that's going to be your traditional you know, unemployment rises because people stop spending because they're out of money. And then businesses start doing layoffs. So then the consumer has less money. And then the Fed has to cut and start doing QE. I think it's gonna be a much more traditional recession. Um, In terms of, you know, the office buildings like everyone, it's not it's not like jingle mail when you're mailing in your house key because you can't afford the mortgage on your fourth house that you got with a liar loan. And that's your easiest option. This is, this is, these are commercial real estate buildings, by and large. Um, they have tenants who are, by and large, probably wanting to keep their space or paying on time. And when it comes time to renewing, you look around the city or work around your neighborhood and you're like, oh, for the same price, I can get a nicer spot. And eventually that building that gets vacant, you know, will have a clearing price. Maybe maybe it gets converted, maybe it gets torn down, maybe it stays empty for a while. But this is this is on a rolling basis. There's no moment in the time where everyone who's a commercial real estate tenant mails in their keys because they can't afford it because there's no more buyers because these leases are unrolling and so i feel like it i feel like it's gonna be a much soft like more of a speed bump type problem it'll be in the news certain banks will fail if they you know overextended to a particular building or a particular region but by and large i think i feel like the risk is really spread out amongst the entire financial system and it won't be the the headline news that um, you know everyone's kind of predicting. Yeah. I, I know
3: we're we're coming up pretty close to our our timeline here. and but I, I've got a, a really important question for for John, and we couldn't have an economic update conversation without talking about crypto. so uh, John or or, <laughs> or or basically some uh, pyramid collapses. So John, I, I've got a, a a cover here, if I can find it but you did a, you had a conversation with Bernie Madoff years ago and his, and his Oh, son. wow. Um, <laughs> and so what, what comparisons have you seen between this and Sam Bankman-Fried?
5: <laughs> well, I was going to make some kind of a joke about um, Sam Bankman-Fried got a haircut. We had, you know, you know, in the financial services industry, they call, they talk about haircuts. And I apparently somebody told me he did get a haircut. Of some kind before he went into court um you know these these scandals come and go um you had Madoff, you had Jordan Belfort Michael Milken but they're all unique and different and yet they're tied at the hip um I think there was eight billion in losses or he supposedly scammed his customers for Sam and then Bernie the interesting thing about Bernie Madoff I think the the customers have recovered over 80 percent um, of their of their losses 3.2 um billion um so the question is how much will be recovered in sam bankman friedman's case um but the, maybe the bigger question is why is crypto still being traded in the marketplace there's a market cap apparently of over one trillion it i mean it's obviously tumbled from over three trillion i i'm, I'm puzzled and i i i cannot make sense to that so I don't know, maybe uh, Sam had something to do with that or not to do with it, but w- he'd be sentenced in Mark and apparently he's looking at 100 years in prison or something and we'll see.
4: I wonder if, do you think part of it might be the fascination with Bitcoin? I know these aren't Bitcoin, but they all kind of get lumped together. With the, the cash supply manipulation issues we were talking about earlier, a lot of the research that Dick did, is there interest in this because there's interest in there potentially being a universal currency that does have a fixed number on the blockchain um, that might be able to help
0: with some of these challenges? Dick, any response? Well, I, I uh, own cryptocurrencies, <laughs> okay, so I'm not totally uh, unbiased. Uh, but I do think that uh, there, there is a function for them. Uh, there is a, a large uh, part of the world that doesn't want to operate in dollars. want some type of universal currency that it can uh, work with. And uh, I think that's one driver. I think, uh, you know, gold is not coming back strongly in price. But I mean, I think that there is a desire to use these currencies as a uh, hedge against inflation. I think, um, you know, countries, uh, you know, have, have moved their currencies into the Bitcoin area. In other words, the dollar is a cryptocurrency. I don't care what you know, uh, what, what people are going to argue to say that it isn't, but, you know, you, you, simple story. I, I once was interviewing the CFO of Wachovia Bank, and I said, uh, can you show me my money? And he said, what are you talking about? I said, can you show me where my cash is in this bank? He says, well, we don't have cash in the bank. We have, we have. It, it's, it's on our computer system. So I said, how do I know your computer system is any good and, and then he got so mad at how to drop the subject. But the point is, the, point is, the dollar is a, a, a digital currency. I mean, it's, you know, to, to assume that it's an actual physical piece of paper currency would be a mistake. So uh, I, I think we're we're trying to evolve into what, what the situation is going to be with, you know, the advance in technology, the, the massive increase in the numbers of uh, dollars or other currencies it can't be used you know physically it's got to be done you know digitally and you know i i kind of have a feeling that the cryptocurrencies are going to find a piece uh, of the action so to speak there so um uh, you know sam bankman fried may have been doing a uh, ponzi scheme of some sort i don't know uh he clearly was <laughs> it's pretty handed some pretty s- stiff if you will setbacks but the point is um, I I I think that cryptocurrencies are going to be with us for a long time because I think digital currencies are now in the mainstream. Dollar, euro, you know, etc.
3: Yeah, Dick, I apologize. We're probably not going to get a whole lot more. Uh, we don't have a lot of time to, to dig into the money supply, but I do want to do want to get everybody's take on uh, what the kind of one I guess forecast one uh, prediction for twenty twenty four.
0: Well, you know, if you want one prediction for 2024, I think it's going to be a year of resolution. I think it's going to be a year in which we come to grips with major problems politically, economically, financially, and in in terms of where and how this economy is growing. So I think it's going to be a very exciting year in the sense that it's going to be a year in which uh, we, we are going to resolve a lot of the problems that we're dealing with right now that we're going to set ourselves on the path of a sustainable, uh, you know, resolutions. And I, and I mean, you know, economically, as well as politically and financially. And therefore, I think uh, 2024 is a year of great promise. Uh, and I think I think by the end of 2024, we're going to be looking at, uh, you know, uh, an entree into 2025, which is going to be very, very positive.
3: Can't wait to get all you guys back for next year, Matt.
1: <laughs> I would love to have whatever Dick took before he had joined this podcast. <laughs> what I see in 2024 is I see two despised presidential candidates um, leading their tickets and in seemingly inevitable. You you have both both parties not liking their candidate for various reasons, and the war in in Gaza has really you know showed a, a split in the democrat party which is much more pro palestinian than i think any party has been you know since israel was was founded but they you know the palestinians are not uh, you know the automatic losers if you go and poll democrats they're they they have a lot of people that are sympathetic and you have a convention in chicago where you have an unpopular president fighting an unpopular war you know that happened before in 1968 and if we can get through 2024 without a recession, it'll be the first time ever that the yield curve has inverted and you haven't had a recession within 12 to 24 months. So that would be, you know, precedent setting. Um, And it doesn't seem like, you know, the job market is there. So I think we're going to have a recession. I think we're going to have a very volatile political period. Um, And we have two major wars, one in Europe and one in the Middle East that, you know, could easily slide into something much bigger than we expect. So, I love Dick's optimism. I I just don't see how you you draw the the map that, that that's the likely outcome. That twenty twenty four is this big appetizer for a gangbusters twenty twenty five. John, it looks like you're the tiebreaker.
5: <laughs> yeah. Well, um, I kind of agree with some of what Dick said and Matt said. I think it's going to be the year of the great reckoning. Uh, we would all love to see the wars end. There's nothing welcome in war except in its ending. Some some uh, famous guy said that uh, we're going to see Sam Bankman-Fried show up in court. He might actually get a haircut this time. I think we're going to see increased polarization in America. I think the presidential election and the debates are going to be uh, rise to the level of of potential fiascos. But in the end, we'll all come together as Americans and as world citizens, and um, we'll come out of the worst eventually
3: and on a positive note somewhere in there, <laughs> there i appreciate it uh this has been incredible guys uh this was a great conversation again apologize dick we didn't dig into your your money supply graph but you can get much more of that on odian capital conversations um uh, as i know they talk about that all the time i highly urge you to go up you can get it on apple spotify all the, all your popular podcasts uh and uh, one of we won't see you again until the beginning of the year, but can't wait to get you back in the beginning of the year. Uh, continue this conversation. We'll see if we're still headed toward a recession, where the wars are, what the politics looks like, uh, where if Sam Bankman-Fried got his haircut, cut. Um, well, <laughs> all the pressing things. Um, but uh, have a happy holiday, a good new year, and we'll see you in the beginning of the year for our next update. Very good. Happy holiday. Happy holiday. And we want to thank everybody. Googleization Nation, uh, all the listeners, thank you for um, you know, being part of our community, for listening to Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. Thanks to Dick, Matt, and John for being such great guests and uh, good friends of the show. So until next time, don't let the shift hit your plans.
2: Thanks for listening to Geeks, Geezers, and Googleization. This show was produced and edited by Hilton Productions.